following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagognosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagognosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. So maybe some of you have even heard of this concept before of um, letting yourself die to an attachment or a desire. But what does it mean in practice? It can be a very lofty ideal, but sometimes it's hard to figure out exactly what is meant by that. So we're going to go through um, some of the different teachings around this topic of psychological death, break it down a bit, and then we'll finish up with the past practical aspects of how we might hope to achieve this little by little in our daily lives. So I want to begin, let's see here, okay, all right, I want to begin with a quote from Samael Anvior. He states in um, his book, Tarot and Kabbalah, intimate self-realization costs has a price, life itself. So the intimate self-realization, which is related to the work of our soul and our spiritual development, costs life itself. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to keep you waiting. I'm not going to explain right now what it means, but we'll come back to it a little later on. I want you to keep it in mind as we talk about death. Because, of course, death is something that all of us should be very aware of. All of us will die one day, physically. And so, although this is an unavoidable part of life, many times we try to avoid it. Even in uh, the news or in the media, we often see that images of death can be covered up at funerals, you know, um, closed caskets. We, you know, we have a society that tries to shield us from death and keep us, you know, focused on, um, you know, all the things we want to attain from life, wealth or status or, you know, our own um, worldly success. And many times we are glad to avoid the topic of death because we fear death, although we know it is inevitable. We have a strong fear of dying. And part of that has to do with the loss of all of those things that we cling to and hold dear. But another part of it is fear of the unknown. What comes after death? We might have many beliefs about this or many ideas about this, but who truly remembers dying? Who truly knows and has experienced what will happen to them after death? We sometimes hear stories of saints or prophets, you know, or masters who were crucified or burned alive or tortured and killed, many gruesome deaths, and yet we hear that throughout all of that, they had a type of serenity and love, even for the ones who were harming them. So why were they not afraid of death or even the pain associated with it? What was the difference between us, as common people, 
and those who have achieved a higher degree of self-development, spiritual development. What comes after death? Well, in this teaching, we understand the law of karma, the law of cause and effect. And we know that whatever actions we sow in this lifetime, we will reap the effects of those actions, whether in this life or after this life. And so what comes after death is entirely determined by what we do today, maybe what we have done yesterday, what we will do tomorrow and for the remaining days of our life. And yet, many times we find that it is hard to live by that principle. That although we know we should be treating others well, perhaps it can be difficult. So I want to begin our talk today with this quote from the Bible, from the book of James. What does it profit, my brothers, though a man say he has faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to them, Depart in peace, be you warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. So we're going to begin this discussion today by thinking about what do we put our faith in? Now we may say, I have faith in God, or I have faith in perhaps something like reincarnation, or heaven, or hell. You may say we have faith in karma, and that we know if we do these <clears throat> good deeds today, that we will reap the benefits of them after this life comes to an end. But does that faith produce works? Do we truly see that our actions reflect the things we claim to have faith in? Or is that faith merely a belief? And when, it, when push comes to shove, we act in a way that we feel will you know, get us the one-up now. Maybe we have to lie to get what we want in a certain situation. And even though we say we have faith in the truth and we know that lying is bad and will cause us pain later on, does our action reflect that we truly know that? Or is it merely a belief? Because we see that faith, if it is merely belief and does not reflect itself in our actions and in our works, is dead. It's dead faith. And we want living faith. Because when we speak of faith in this tradition, we try to emphasize it is different from mere belief. That faith is something that we know from our lived experience. That we know so deeply that no matter what anyone says, we would not be shaken. We would not have to react or argue with them. We would not doubt ourselves. Because we would know that this is true because we have lived it. We have experienced it directly. I'll give you an example of something that most of us, if not all, have living faith in. Perhaps you burned yourself, whether it's you know on a stovetop or a fire, and or maybe when you were a little kid, you know there was something hot around and you accidentally burned yourself. Now, if you know nowadays that something is hot or you see a fire, no matter how many people tell you, oh no no, go ahead, touch the hot stove, or Stick your hand in the fire. Go ahead and step into the fire. You won't do it. Now, maybe if your house is burning down and there's something very, very precious, you might risk it. But most of the time, if there's not a very good reason, no matter what anyone said to try to convince us, we would not touch that fire because we know we, were, we would be burned. We know that from experience. And it's just not worth it, you know, to take someone's word for something when we already know it's true. In the same way, we don't have to argue with people about whether or not grass is green or the sky is blue because we know these things. And even if somebody comes up to you and tells you, no, the sky is neon green, you'll just perhaps think that's a little strange, but you wouldn't really have to waste your time in an argument or doubt yourself because you can see that that's true. 
So when we hear that prophets and saints, that Jesus and Buddha, Krishna, all these great masters have given us a message that divinity, that angels, that demons, hell and heaven, that these types of places and beings are real, it can be hard for us to have faith in that if we don't have an experience or a remembrance of seeing that directly. So it might feel that we have to just believe and take that person's word for it, that we have to trust that the saints and prophets who preach these types of messages, they experienced it, and so we should take their word for it. But the reason that the Gnostic path is such a difficult one is because we take nothing on, on mere belief. We truly have to test and investigate these teachings, the teachings from you know, beautiful masters, beautiful spiritual teachers, and we have to test them and evaluate them in our own experience and in our own practice. And that takes more than just normal efforts. It takes super efforts. And so in this tradition, we work very hard to do that. So I start with this sentiment about faith because all of us know for a fact that we will die. We know that intellectually. Perhaps we've seen our loved ones die and that hit us with a lot of grief and perhaps made us think about our own mortality. But do we truly deeply comprehend the reality of death? Do we know it so deeply that we live our life truly knowing that this day could be our last? So that co-worker or friend or family member who you have a grudge against and you know that, okay, yeah, sure, I should let that grudge go, but still it eats away at you. Do you truly stop and think, if I died tomorrow, would this grudge really matter to me? Would getting my revenge on this person really be that important? If I were to die tomorrow, wouldn't I wish instead that I felt love for them, that I had forgiven them? So we have to question whether or not we deeply comprehend the reality of our inevitable death, because if we did, perhaps we would be living quite differently. So one practice is at the end of each day to contemplate your daily activities, to do that retrospection, meditation of everything that you've said and done, thought and felt that day from the perspective of if you were to die that night. And to think if you would have done something differently because hopefully, God willing, the next day we'll have another chance to try to do it differently. Now, there is a arcanum in the tarot that is very commonly associated with death. The arcanum of death is arcanum 13. But as you'll notice here in the tarot card from the Gnostic tarot deck, arcanum 13 is immortality. So there's a relationship there. Immortality has in its center the root mort, which relates to death. But immortality is to be able to overcome death, to be able to resist death. So even in this card, we see the reaper reaping the wheat, representing death. And we see young wheat that is growing in a period of perhaps, you know, youth. And we see up above the flowers representing birth and rebirth. So as we think about this hierarchy of the law, reaping the grains of wheat, Samuel Ambiore explains in his teaching that these grains of wheat, each little grain and the long grains and the short grains, represent vital energies, vital qualities that we have, vital values. So we learned previously about the three brains. We have an intellectual brain, our intellectual center, which processes intellectual energy. We have an emotional brain, which processes emotional energy. And we have a motor instinctive sexual brain, which processes energy in those levels. And those three brains are mechanical. They're machines. 
And each of those brains runs on a certain type of fuel, which we can think of as vital values. We can compare each one to perhaps an engine. And just like the engine in your car requires gasoline to run, each of these three brains requires vital values to be able to run. Now we have kind of a funny word to talk about these, bob and candle moths. But whether or not you remember the word, it's important to know that at the beginning of our life, each of us are given a different number of vital values in each of our three brains. And that after those, that quantity of vital values has been used up, that that brain will no longer function properly. If we use up all of our intellectual values, perhaps we'll have illnesses of the mind, mental illnesses. If we do so with our emotional values, we might have you know, um, disorders of the emotional center, depression, anxiety. And if we do so with our motor, instinctive, or sexual center, we may have very difficult physical illnesses as well. So what's important to recognize is that conserving energy is very important. And when we have some states of being, like pride or envy or anger or lust, we use up a lot of those vital values. Whereas when we have a calm disposition, when we are able to respond to life with genuine compassion and serenity, we don't use hardly as much energy and we prolong our life by preserving those vital values. So the qualities that waste the most energy are egotistical. You might think that you have a problem at work, right? And so you need to deal with that problem at work. But let's say that you're home from work and there's nothing you can do to work on that problem right now, but you're spending all night or maybe your whole weekend worrying and thinking about it and trying to figure it out and going back and forth thinking the same thoughts over and over and really getting anxious about it. This can waste a tremendous amount of energy. At the end of the day, you just have to go to work and take an action. You just have to do what you can to solve the problem. But we tend to think that we can use our intellectual brain to solve the problem. Now, this might be helpful for certain types of problems, but for many problems, it's actually the wrong center to be using to try to fix them. For example, in that case, perhaps we need to use our motor center to act, to do something, to take care of it. We have to judge each situation on a case-by-case basis, but we also need to be observing how we are responding to the different situations in our life and evaluating how much energy we are expending and what are we truly gaining from that energy. We know that, yes, it takes energy to be able to sit for half an hour or an hour to meditate, but what do we gain from an hour of meditation? I think that there is no one who would truly say that they regret meditating. But perhaps we spend an hour yelling at the person that we're angry at, and we might come to regret that later on. So thinking of these types of perspectives when you review your daily activities, what are you truly getting out of it? Are you preserving your life force, your vital values? Or are you squandering it on things that, when the moment of death comes, will not have as much significance as you might feel they do in this moment. So for that reason, we seek in the study to radically oppose our ego, our own sense of self, the things that we have planned for this life, that we want for this life, that are entirely egotistical, that are about our prestige, our success, our material wealth, all of these things. Now, yes, we need to be concerned with worldly affairs to a certain degree in order to live and to survive in this society and to do our job. But when do we go overboard? When are we being wasteful of those energies? And when are we actually using those energies in an appropriate amount to complete the daily tasks that we have to perform? So that's why we seek to annihilate our ego entirely. Now, this work takes a very long time. But this is the work of this Arcanum, because Arcanum 13 is related with the Gospel of Judas Iscariot. Now, most of us will be familiar with the story of Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Christ. He sold Christ to the authorities for 30 coins of silver, 
Now, those 30 coins of silver can have many levels of meaning. But simply put, they might represent worldly desires, desires for wealth, desires for sensual pleasures, desires for power and fame, sensation. So do we sell our intimate Christ for the worldly sensations, for the desires of our personality or our ego? Do we sell our spiritual life for our worldly life? And when the moment of death comes, when everything that we've accumulated in this worldly life is taken away from us, what will we truly have left? What will we have invested into our soul, into the part of us that will go on after death? <clears throat> so let's look at what Samael Anveor has told us about this arcanum. He says that this arcanum relates to our true identity. Common and ordinary people do not have a true identity because only those phantoms of the pluralized I are expressed through them. Thus, after, each, after death, each human is a legion. So we talked before about ego in contrast with consciousness and personality. Now the ego we sometimes refer to as one, like we need to annihilate the entire ego because it is an aggregate, but it's an aggregate of many different egos, many different desires. And we might experience in a given moment that we desire multiple things. Maybe we want to go out and get some exercise today, but we're also really tired and we just want to sit on the couch. And in that moment, we are pulled by two desires. Or perhaps we want to scream at the person that has just criticized us, but at the same time, another part of us struggles to have a kind reaction, to express compassion to them instead of anger. So many times we feel this conflict. And that's why Samuel and Vior is pointing out here that common, ordinary people like us don't have a true identity. We have a pluralized identity. We have all these little eyes that in each moment are fighting for control of our machine, our human machine, fighting to drive the intellectual center in one direction and the emotional center in another direction and the physical center in another direction. So we need to be aware of that, that many times we say, oh yes, this is truly what I want. This is me. This is what's important to me and what I value. I value honesty. But a little while later, just in the right situation of pressure, we betray the things that we have said we value. We lie when we say that honesty is our policy or any other number of things. So as much as we believe we may be good people who would never do certain immoral actions or unethical steps, at the same time we have to realize that we don't truly know ourselves, that there are depths of our identity in our subconscious that would terrify us. We don't know what we are capable of in a given situation when the pressures are just right. We don't know what might emerge out of us when we are truly frightened or when we are tempted by something more than what we can resist. So we have to recognize the parts of ourselves that we are aware of, but also always be striving to know our deeper self, things about ourselves that might emerge in our dreams or in our fantasies and be examining, who am I really? Because everything that emerges in your mind has a relationship with you, is a part of you. So we might think some angry, hateful thought or a violent thought, and then we say, oh, but I'm not a violent person. I would never do that. But if it is a part of our mind, it is a part of us. We are more than just our actions. We are more than just our thoughts, more than just our emotions, more than just our instincts. These people are complex. So what is the soul? The soul which should be our true identity. Samuel and Bior states, whosoever incarnates their soul acquires true identity and thus already is. Present humans are not self-realized beings. This points out to us that we have more to accomplish, that we are not at our most developed state we try to say that people nowadays 
are the most evolved civilization that there has ever been on this planet. But when we look at the state of our world, when we read the newspapers and hear about all the violent acts that go on, we know that that cannot be true, that people cannot be living at their highest potential of spiritual development, compassion, wisdom, and virtue, and all those qualities that we see represented in saints and Christ-like figures. So those figures are because they are representations of their own inner divinity, of their own inner spirit. On that level, our being, our spirit, is perfect and is perfect knowledge. It does not have to think because it knows, because it is truth and beauty and perfection, wisdom, love, and virtue. It already is. But how do we reach a state in which that spirit is what is emanating from us physically, emotionally, mentally, in our words, in our deeds? Well, the next section here on willpower gives us a very important clue onto a big obstacle that we might encounter. Present humans confuse the force of desire with willpower. We need to engender Christ's will. So many times we've had a desire that is so powerful that we felt we would do anything to pursue it. Maybe this is a desire for a job or a new car or a certain partner any number of things, maybe even a desire for a certain type of food. And we've taken all kinds of actions and maybe we've uh, violated our own ethics in order to be able to get what we wanted. And all the time we thought we were fighting for what I want. That is my will. But truly, from a spiritual perspective, in those moments we were controlled by a desire. We were not in control in that situation. The desire was driving us. That egotistical desire was driving our human machine. Perhaps the desire was to get revenge on someone who had betrayed us and truly hurt us. And all the time we felt, this is my will. My will is to get revenge and make this person feel the pain that they made me feel. And all along we think we are doing our will. But afterwards, when the deed is done and we see the suffering and we have to look in the mirror and know we have truly hurt someone that we once cared about, then we might question, was that really my will? Or was I being driven by a demonic force within myself, an egotistical force that now I wish I had never had that desire in the first place? So we need to be analyzing our day every day because we, we can catch things, we can see things, we can recognize a desire, and we can comprehend it before it drives us to take actions that are harmful for ourselves or for others. And when we do that, when we meditate, when we pray, when we ask God to illuminate our mind, to help us to comprehend the truth and what is the right action in those situations, we can begin to gain true willpower. Because our will should be united with the will of our inner divinity. Our inner spirit is the best part of each one of us. If every person could reflect their spirit and perform the will of their spirit, they would perform truly miraculous feats. They would be a beacon of love and wisdom. So we want to engender that, that Christ will. The will of divinity within us, our own unique representation of divinity and many people might claim that they feel they are channeling the divine and maybe in a moment they might even have a mystical experience that's truly beautiful and is divine but can we sustain that state on a regular basis or is our willpower constantly being overrun by different desires that are driving the car so we need to ask ourselves who do we live for do we live our life for God, for the will of our inner spirit, to truly become the best that we are able to become under the guidance of our inner father? Or do we live our life for our ego, for the worst parts of ourselves, the demonic parts of us, the vices that we carry within
So Samuel M. Dior goes on to say that life and death are two phenomena of the same thing. In every moment that we are living in a certain way, there is another route of possibilities that is dying. Every time we come to a fork in the road and we choose to go right, we are not going left. Right, simply put, when you make a decision, you are putting into motion a new chain of events, a new chain of effects. And so when we act on a harmful quality, we are giving life to that harmful quality. We are feeding it our energy. We are letting it live and express itself through our body, through our heart, through our mind, through our words and actions. And we are giving it more strength and vitality. Well, what dies as a consequence of that? The consequence of that. If I spend 75% of my day thinking about me, doing actions for me, pushing others aside so that I can get at the front of the line, well, what is dying in the 75% of my day? What's dying is the will of my being, the life of my own soul, the possibilities that my spirit might have performed through me had I truly been awake, had I truly been mindful, and at one, and in a state in which I could hear the will of my inner divinity, could feel that will, could be that will, and perform it. So every time we make a decision or we say something, we are sowing the consequences. We are sowing the causes that will reap different consequences. So we need to be aware of that when we go and we evaluate our life. So we see here a butterfly coming out of a cocoon. What has to die for the butterfly to live? Well, we know, if we know um, a bit about, you know, biology, we know that for the butterfly to live, the caterpillar has to die. Now, a lot of us like to think that we are already butterflies. And we are flying around and maybe we know so much about what there is to know and we are really living life to our fullest potential. Some people like to think that. But the reality is actually closer to that we are the caterpillar. We are very limited in our thoughts, in our emotions, in our physical abilities, in our spiritual abilities. We're not nearly invincible. We truly can't fly into the higher realms of existence and experience and see the truth of reality and nature for ourselves. We have a very narrow ability to perceive. Now what happens if the caterpillar doesn't know what it takes to become a butterfly? And the caterpillar refuses to die, refuses to build the cocoon, fights tooth and nail to preserve its existence as a caterpillar, feels that being a caterpillar is the height of all there is to be. And it chooses instead to focus on getting fat, you know, eating a lot of leaves, um, you know, roaming the earth, and, and never learns to fly. It will never know what potential it had. And this is the analogy here with the soul. We, we say that we have an essence, we have a seed of a soul. And we believe that that's that our ego and our personality and our physical body, that that's who I am. That's all that we know of ourselves. So to give up the things that I egotistically want, that maybe I've spent many years wanting and have worked for, a certain number in my bank account, a certain promotion at work, a certain type of spouse, to give that up seems like giving up myself. What else would there be for me if I didn't have that? Because we don't know what it would be like to truly experience the possibilities of our soul and of our spirit. If we knew that, if we knew what it was to be the butterfly, which actually is used in many symbols to represent the soul, the psyche. If we knew what that was, we would be so glad that we let the caterpillar go. Because we've already experienced what being a caterpillar is like. Now we want to know what it is to be a fully self-realized being. But in order for our soul to live, the ego has to die. Oh. 
That's why life and death are part of the same thing. And every moment, in order for you to live, something has to die. Even if we're a vegetarian, we have to kill plants in order for us to live. And in order, you know, for anything to live, for anything to be born, there must be death as well. Um, Jesus said the same thing in the Bible. In the book of John, he said, Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So we want to know what fruit we could bear if we were performing the will of our being. Perhaps you've had an experience where you've done a good deed, a truly selfless deed, and maybe something just came over you in that moment and you put aside whatever else you were doing or worrying about to truly help someone who needed help. And the consequences of that action were far greater than the act itself. Now, some of us are fortunate to have had that person come back to us at some point and share with us what a difference we made in their lives. But sometimes we never find out that maybe that kind word or that kind deed was the only thing helping that person to keep going or the, the break that that person finally needed to get to the next stage of their life. Or maybe it was the example of kindness that gave that person faith in humanity, that gave that person faith in their own goodness. Um, there are many jaded people in the world today, unfortunately, very cynical, who believe that it is naive to believe in goodness or in these virtues of the spirit. Those people have been heard enough times to know that, you know, trusting people can sometimes cause pain. But trust is actually a quality of strength because after that period of naivety, after that period of cynicism, we come to realize that regardless of getting hurt, what we do is a reflection of who we are. And if we truly want to reflect on our life and on ourselves with self-respect, with dignity, with the peace and serenity that comes with saying, hey, maybe I didn't always do a great job, but I truly know that I strived every day of my life to do the best that I could, to do the will of my inner divinity, to do what my conscience called upon me to do then that brings a type of serenity no matter what anybody else says about us, no matter how we are judged or persecuted by the world or whatever criticisms our loved ones might say. But we know that we're truly striving for the best that we believe we're capable of, truly trying to follow the guidance of our inner divinity and to manifest the greatness of self. We have to realize that all these saints and prophets and great beings like Jesus Krishna, Muhammad, Moses, Buddha, all of them were once people, just like us, whether in that lifetime or in a previous lifetime. And all of them had to fight. Of course, yes, it was partially the grace of divine will that all of us have access to the mercy of divine will. But also it was a result of their own super efforts, their tremendous discipline to work on themselves and to strive for the best that they knew they, are, they were capable of in their heart, in their conscience. So, Samuel Ambiore also says that when one dies to the cosmos, one is born for the absolute. The cosmos is a representation of this material world, the realm of samsara in Buddhism, the realm of cause and effect in which we are chained to the wheel of suffering. And the absolute represents the unmanifested reality, the perfect divinity, nirvana in Buddhism, the part of us that is deep within us right now that we can realize that even in this body we can have access to the absolute, to nirvana, to a state that is free from suffering because it is, because it knows, because it is perfection and love and wisdom. But we have to die to this world to be born into that world. And that's why Jesus also stated in the book of Matthew, 
For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is speaking there as a representation of the Christ, that solar divinity that is universal, that is an energy and an intelligence that is beyond any one person but can manifest within us, you and me, if we work, if we eliminate our ego, if we die to what we feel right now is my life and the things I want, the things that my personality and my culture and my family says I should do. And we give up those temporary pleasures, those temporary desires of this life, and we work to give up our life and dedicate our life and our daily actions and our words to the sake of our inner divinity. We lose our life for the sake of God, our inner spirit. Then we truly find our life. We find our soul, the potentials of reality that we can scarcely imagine in this moment. We begin to see another side of life, another side of ourselves that is much greater than what we currently experience. But if we desire merely to save our life, our property, our bank account, you know, our um, prestige, our status, our success, then at the end of our life when death comes, we will lose that and we will lose the opportunity we had to develop our soul as well. So we have to work hard. And this brings us back to that quote that I mentioned at the beginning. Intimate self-realization costs. It has a price. Life itself we have to work extremely hard on our mind. Each day we have to get better and better. Yes, we start where we are. We start with little actions, little changes, whatever we're capable of today. Then tomorrow we'll be capable of a little more. But we have to truly be giving all that we can give in each moment, in each day, those moments when we're awake and catching ourselves, when we're tempted to choose not to give in to temptation, but instead to pray in our heart, God, guide me in this moment to do your will, to do the will of the best part of myself, my soul, my spirit. That's how we live. That's how we find our life. We give up our life in order to find our eternal life, the life of our soul, our self-realization. <clears throat> so we see in this, image, uh, in this image Perseus holding the head of Medusa. Medusa, if you're not familiar with the myth, was the Gorgon, a mythical beast. And anyone who looked at her and saw her eyes would turn into stone, would die. They would be immobilized, unable to act ever again. And Perseus is the hero who finally conquered Medusa. Now this is related with this problem we've been talking about, about giving up the ego. How do we overcome our ego? Well, we can use the example of Perseus here. Perseus, in order to kill Medusa, had two, two tools in particular. He had others, but in particular, I'm going to focus on two tools that he had in the mess. One was the sword, the sword with which he was able to cut off her head. And that sword is related with willpower. The sword is a symbol of our will, divine will the power of the will of divinity. For if God wills something, it will be done. Nothing can stop our inner divinity. And if we incarnate that will, we will be capable of much more than what we're capable in our present egotistical form because of that power of divinity. So Perseus is demonstrating to us that it takes tremendous willpower, not tremendous desire. Desire is an obstacle we all face, but replacing that desire with true willpower. And he also had a shield that was very reflective. And he was able to use the shield like a mirror to see around the corner, to see Medusa without looking directly into her eyes. And thus he was able to avoid being killed by her, being turned to stone. And he was able to use her reflection to see where she was at, to observe her, and to kill her with the sword of his willpower. So we know that we need willpower, and we also know that we need 
reflection. Now that's the self-observation, the self-reflection that we do. It's also meditation. We might be angry during the day, and in that moment we see something in ourselves coming out. Or we might feel envy, and we feel that envy, and we see somebody good, somebody getting something good happening to us, and we feel really envious, and we say, oh, yeah, I see that. Hmm, I, I wish I didn't feel envious, but I do. So we go home, and we use that shield, that meditative state in which we are able to separate from our ego, to separate from ourself, and to reflect on it in a state of peace and serenity, a, state, a prayerful state. And we're able to observe that envy as though it were a separate person, as though its desires were not our desires, but were separate from us. And in that state, we can learn a lot about it. We can see it for what it is. We can separate from it. And we can avoid being killed by it. We can avoid being turned to stone. And thus we can cut off its head with our own willpower. Now, perhaps that still sounds a little bit um, too abstract for some of us. But I promise at the end here, we're moving into the last section, I will give a practical example. But I want to wrap up with renunciation because renunciation is truly the method that we use to die psychologically. Renunciation is truly the way that we kill our ego. What does it mean to renounce something? It means to give something up. Now sometimes this is something precious to us. And when we renounce it and we give it up, it can be painful. But sometimes if we've meditated on something like our envy or our pride or our lust or our anger, our greed, we've meditated on it and we've seen how ugly it is, how much it really causes us suffering. Every time I act on that, it causes me to suffer and it causes others to suffer. Then when we go to renounce it on the altar of our inner divinity, we are happy to be rid of it. That's a state of comprehension. That's when you truly know from your own deep comprehension, from your own meditation, your own direct experience, that that action, that that state, that quality of mind and emotion brings harm, brings pain, brings suffering. And so you want to renounce it. You invoke your Divine Mother and you pray to her to help you to destroy that part of yourself, that ego, to free your soul, your essence, your consciousness from that egotistical desire and to destroy the desire and regain that energy, that willpower into your soul. Now, renunciation is the first of the three principal paths in Buddhism, as taught by Tsongkhapa, a great Buddhist teacher. So I'm going to read you a little passage from the three principal paths, which is a short scripture that Tsongkhapa wrote. Without pure renunciation, there is no way to end this striving for pleasant results in the ocean of life. It is because of their hankering life as well that beings are fettered. So think renunciation first. So what does it mean, the striving for pleasant results in the ocean of life? Life has many experiences and many possibilities. And we are striving for many pleasant results. None of us want to experience suffering. None of us want to experience old age or illness or death. We want to experience happiness and pleasure and joy and, you know, feeling looked up to and respected. We want those pleasant results. And so each day we devote a large portion of our life to pursuing those pleasant results to pursuing more money. Maybe we work at a job that we really don't feel good about. Maybe we don't even like our job. But we work there because we know we want more money. That's a pleasant result we're seeking. The feeling of security we get from having a lot of money or the feeling of pride that we get from having a lot of money. So we devote how much of our time and our energy and our efforts to pursuing that, to striving for that. So without renouncing that desire or any number of the desires that we have, there's no way that we can end that striving for pleasant results. As long as we hold on to that desire and we say, yeah, 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 I want my spiritual development. I want to be self-realized, but also I want to be wealthy and I want to have a yacht and a big house and a lot of 
uh, people respecting me and I want to be famous or whatever it is for us. Maybe it's not such um, materialistic things. Maybe there are other desires we have that we want to achieve in our life. As long as we hold on to those, we are killing the potential of our soul, at least to the degree that we are holding on to those desires. And that's why he stated it is because of their hankering life, hankering after all the things that we want in life, that beings are fettered, that we are chained up, that we are bound here, that we are not able to achieve our full potential, that we are not able to experience those higher possibilities of the soul and the spirit, see the rest of life. It is because of our striving after pleasant results that we are the caterpillar instead of the butterfly. So first we must seek renunciation without renouncing egotism as it manifests itself in our daily deeds. Then we cannot begin on the path. We cannot achieve um, freedom and liberation from suffering. Sankapa goes on to say, leisure and fortune are hard to find. Life is not long. Think it constantly. Stop desire for this life. Think over and over how deeds and their fruits never fail and the cycle suffering. Stop desire for the future. So he's talking exactly about what we've been talking about. Death is inevitable. And we need to think about that constantly. In fact, in Buddhism, there is a practice of meditating on one's death. Truly sitting and meditating on what it would be like if in this moment your body began to die, life began to uh, fade from your, from your organs, from your body, from your tissues, and you began to be able to um, lose your last breath. You know, think about perhaps your funeral and the grieving relatives and all the things that you would leave behind, and you realize that this, is inevitable that this actually will happen maybe not in the way that you visualize it in your meditation but it will happen and are you living a life that reflects how you hope to feel at that moment of death or are there things that you would change before that moment came because we don't know when it will come so we have to think about how all the things that we invest our time into might be reaping fruits later on that we will only lose because they're temporary so that how deeds and their fruits never fail is the teaching of karma. Whatever actions we take today will have an effect, even if we don't see it in this lifetime. If we perform good deeds, we will see the fruits of those deeds someday. <clears throat> so he goes on to say, when you have meditated thus and feel not even a moment's wish for the good things of cyclic life, that is the cycle of samsara, the cycle of suffering that keeps us bound here in this world. And when you begin to think both day and night of achieving freedom, you have found renunciation. So we have to begin where we're at, of course. We need to renounce what we can today. And those things that we can't renounce, we just need to observe them and study them more until we learn about them and understand the true effects of what those are achieving for us. You know, I've had rare moments where I've thought something was bad and then, you know, been observing it and been meditating it for a while and actually found that it was producing good effects for others and for me. But I had been beating myself up about it because of, you know, some belief that I had. Now, at the same time, there were things that I believed were good deeds that I was doing to help others and later came to find were not actually the case. So here's where I deliver on my promise of giving you a practical example. Here at our level, how can we experience renunciation? How can we die psychologically? So several years ago, I was, of course, doing this practice of self-observation during the day and retrospecting my entire day each night in meditation. So I... <clears throat> was assigned a project to work on with two colleagues of mine. And so it was a group project. And the topic that we were working on, I was very excited about because this was a project that I actually had much previous experience in. 
so I could see, I could feel that excitement in myself and that energy of wanting to get to work on the project. And when I sat down for the first meeting with my two colleagues and we talked about the topic of our project, um, I discovered that they were not so enthusiastic about it. They wished that they'd got assigned different projects and they didn't have the experience that I had in it. So I thought, of course, oh, well, if you guys aren't, aren't excited about it, you know, I can really take on a lot of the work here. You know, I have a lot of ideas about this. I have a lot of experience in it. I'm really excited about it. So you guys can kick back and relax and, and not worry about it too much. So here in this case, I thought I was doing a good thing, right? Now, time went on. And we continued to have meetings, and I felt something was off. I could, ex I could, you know, intuitively feel in those meetings that there was some distance between me and the other two. And there was one meeting that I remember where we sat together, and 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 you know, I was pitching some ideas to them, and they were shooting down my ideas. And then they began to talk about uh, their ideas, and and I realized from from their discussion that they'd been meeting together uh, separately from me and discussing their own ideas. And I felt this pain in my heart in that moment. And I felt hurt. And I felt that they didn't appreciate me and the good things that I was trying to do. And I went home that night, and I was meditating on my day, and I, I took some extra time to focus on that experience and to think, well, why was I so hurt in that moment? And to observe it, what did I feel? What were the looks on their faces? How were they feeling? What was... You know, just to replay it as best as I could. And suddenly, I had um, a bit of an experience where I, where I saw this situation in third person. I wasn't trying to do this. It just happened. And in the meditative state, I was seeing it as though it was from another person's perspective. And I was replaying and seeing all the things that I was saying. And I realized that from the very beginning, I had come into this uh, this project, although I thought I was doing something good, there was actually a desire for my own ideas, my own pride in my ideas and my experience and what I had to contribute and the success I wanted to see for myself in this project. And I hadn't seen that because, of course, I was inside of that desire. But when I saw this in meditation from a third perspective point of view, I actually saw that I was being quite arrogant and that I wasn't giving them, um, you know, the same appreciation of their ideas, that I had kind of written them off from the beginning and gone off with what I wanted to do. So was it any surprise to me that they had felt that they had to meet on their own and come up with their ideas on their own and push back against me when I had, you know, out of arrogance, not even listened or valued their perspectives? So I felt very humbled when I saw this. Although initially I had felt hurt and angry at my two colleagues, after comprehending this in meditation, I actually felt embarrassed. And I felt ashamed of the pride that I'd shown, and I had just honestly not seen it. But now that I saw it, I knew that I had to renounce it. And so it was actually difficult for me, despite having seen this and comprehended this to a degree in meditation, it was difficult for me, but at the next meeting with them, I started off the meeting by apologizing, by admitting that I felt I hadn't really valued their opinions from the beginning and that, um, you know, because I was so excited about the project and invested in my own ideas, I hadn't really um, listened to them enough. And I apologized for that and said that I'd like to work in a more collaborative fashion from now on. And for the rest of the project, the experience was completely different. I had to die in my pride. It was painful to renounce my pride. You know, as embarrassed as I was about how I'd been acting, I was also in those moments when I had to apologize, still kind of feeling like, oh, I shouldn't have to apologize to these people. You know, they still did something wrong too. So I had to renounce that. I had to be humble. I had to give that up and die. And I felt pain emotionally as I was dying. But after I did that act and I reaped the benefits of what it was truly like to collaborate with others, and what it was truly like to learn from them and the valuable ideas that I had and to appreciate them and to see the way that then they came to appreciate me as well. I had no regrets about having renounced my pride. So I was very fortunate in that situation to see something in myself that I had not seen before, 
to see my life from the perspective of others, my actions from the perspective of others, and to, to let my pride in that moment die, and to take the action that I felt my guidance, uh, the guidance of my conscience leading me to take, which was to apologize and to humble myself. <clears throat> Additionally, I will add that not long after that, I was hired for a new job, and I went into that job with a lot more humility. And I listened to my colleagues, and I valued their ideas, and I um, supported their ideas, and I didn't just go into every meeting you know, boasting about how great my ideas were and trying to get everybody to listen to me and how great I was. Because from that experience, I had truly learned something that had changed me on a deep enough level that I would never go back and want to act the way that I had behaved before. So that's a very practical example. I, I picked a very little example, you know, but, but as small as that example is and as insignificant as it may seem, it had effects in my life. Now, there have been bigger, effect, uh, bigger examples in my life that, you know, are a bit too personal to share, but each of us in our own way, whether big or small, can be analyzing our life like this, can be praying to our divinity to overcome our defects. And sometimes to lay the desire that we cling so tightly to on the altar of divinity and to sacrifice that for our inner spirit can be painful. But the gifts that are bestowed upon us, the potentials, the capability, the wisdom, the virtue, and the love that is bestowed upon us in degrees as a result of that action are much, much more valuable than anything we've lost in the process of sacrificing and renouncing. So I'll conclude the lecture with one more quote, which I feel truly summarizes everything that we've talked about today in a very practical way. This quote comes from Dion Fortune. <clears throat> the personality and the things of the senses have to be sacrificed in order that the higher self may manifest. There can be no dispute on this point. All the initiates have declared it to be so. So she's talking about how all the great spiritual teachers, the initiates, have taught that we need to sacrifice the things of our physical senses, our personality, our egotism, in order that our higher self, our spirit, our highest potential can manifest. She goes on to state, we are inclined to think that, having sacrificed the personality, we shall be bereft of all things. This is because the mind of the West still clings to its habit that the death of the body ends existence. So we believe subconsciously that the death of personality ends enjoyment of the fullness of life. Here she's talking about how whether we state to believe that there is life after death, we actually live as though we feel that survival in this world is all there is. Our actions demonstrate where faith truly lies. We might say that, oh yeah, it's good to, uh, you know, be generous and to donate money. But at the same time, another part of us truly takes actions to gather more money. You know, because that's really, our faith is in the security of the world, the security of money, the security of material position, uh, possessions and, you know, positions and status as well. So we believe that the death of our personality would end our enjoyment of the fullness of life. But we don't realize that our ego actually restricts our experience of the rest of existence, all of those states of consciousness that are beyond our current state of consciousness. And as long as we remain trapped in ego, trapped in that cocoon, we will never achieve those higher states the greater potentials that we're capable of will never become the butterfly who can fly into the realms of the heavens and truly meet divinity face to face. And finally, she concludes, we forget that the merchant who sold all he had was able to purchase the great pearl. True, he had realized all his assets, but they were reinvested in something of far greater value. The gospel story implies that he bore off the pearl in triumph. So it is with us if we make the sacrifice of the things of the senses that permits the incarnation of the higher self in the physical body. So we sacrifice the things of this lifetime 
that we want and that we desire egotistically just for me, just because I want it. In order for our inner divinity to manifest in our physical body and to perform good deeds and great teachings for the benefit of humanity. Now, just in case you're not familiar with the parable of the great pearl that she references here, it is in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus taught that the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls who, when he found one of great value, went away and sold everything he had and bought it. The pearl of great value that Jesus is referring to here is our soul, is our spiritual life. It is of such great value that it is worth selling everything that we own. And that is why Dion Fortune mentions that the merchant bore off the pearl in triumph. He did not sit around crying about all the things that he had to give up and renounce in order for this spiritual work. He went off so happy because he truly knew and experienced the benefits for his spiritual life, for his soul, the benefits that he was able to perform um, good works for, for others, for those he cared about, for the world, which is experiencing so much suffering. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.